everyone and welcome to the Lisa Burke Show. It's really great to be back with you after a wonderful summer break. I hope you've all had a wonderful summer as well with rest and rejuvenation and ready to face the autumn ahead. We certainly felt a turn in the weather. Now, alongside our radio show and podcast, you can watch this chat show on RTL Play. It's so many ways to engage with us and now. Actually, there are the social media channels as well. So my guests this week, you can see them here if you're watching on RTL Play. As always, I've got Sasha Kyo to give us a reflection of the week's news. Dr. Catherine Hadler, director of ESRIC, and Dr. Roderick McCall, group leader of the Visualisation and Interaction Research Group at LIST. Welcome to you all. Hello. I, I feel kind of uh, underconfident. I'm the only non-scientist here. Oh, oh I've just realised. Well, I'm a normal person, so good morning. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I'm going to turn to you directly, Sasha, because you have to be uh, an expert in all fields, really, being a journalist. And, of course, uh, we're recording this on Friday morning. And last night we had the announcement that Queen Elizabeth II died aged 96. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of the news coverage of this. Well, it feels like quite a momentous occasion, doesn't it? Um, my, I, Actually, uh, this is not uh, newsy, but I, I was speaking to my mother last night who said, well, of course, it is three generations. I mean, she's 79. She said, I grew up with the Queen. You know, you have and your daughter. You know, none of us have known a, an alternative. So, um, yeah, it does feel like a very sad day. Um, even in, in Luxembourg, I think, um, you know, both uh, Xavier Bettel and uh, the foreign minister, Jean Asselborn, very quickly paid tribute, um, as have all, literally all world leaders. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, people have been paying tribute and remembering her, which is quite nice. So I know it's a very sombre occasion, especially in the UK. Um, but after 96 years, you also can enjoy the, the, the sort of kind lovely tributes, I think. Um, and I noticed, for example, that the BBC were already playing the Paddington sketch, um, <laughs> which has probably got to be everybody's favourite, um, which was the Queen taking out a marmalade sandwich out of her handbag saying, this is where I keep mine. Um, Paddington, famous in the UK for always having a spare marmalade sandwich in his hat. Um, and, and the... And the boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. You wish they clicked on their glasses with this. Well, we will rock you. <laughs> it's very yeah. sweet, isn't it? So, you know, people are remembering her sense of humour. And um, and I think uh, a lot of world leaders are also um, been quite modest because I, th I think they were starstruck, to be honest. I mean, when, when you remember all the footage, even someone like Donald Trump looked kind of starstruck. So you're like, she was the most famous woman on the planet and that's it. Well, talking about the American leaders, uh, one of the tweets that came into the BBC yesterday was somebody saying that she served for a quarter of the existence of the US. Wow. <laughs> wow yeah, so can you imagine? Actually, more than a quarter of the existence of the US, which is extraordinary. And also, I was just listening to the conversation so much about it. And um, she somehow contained and remained slightly mysterious. She didn't give interviews and yet was approachable. So she kept the mystique of the monarchy, um, but still served. It was that service that I thought was extraordinary. And it reminded me of my secondary school's motto on my blazer, which was Serviam, I will serve. And uh, she was just the epitome of service, I think, and quiet dignity, nothing showy, even though she was a queen. She just was you, aged aged properly, gracefully and um, 
she just seemed to be always there. Like you said, your mother was saying there are not many people in the world who will know a time before the Queen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely, and um, and I think it's it's uh, very interesting as well. Is is that it's it's a people feel it's a passing of an era. Yes, it's as you said about dignity and and service. Um, people probably feel a bit nervous. They don't know what the, what the future holds in store for us because certainly the the rest of the royal family or you know you don't feel that it's it's as private that her their lives will be as private or as um, full of servitude as as hers was well they don't have the length of time left i imagine <laughs> and and also they've lived in a different era but yeah the funny things are the industries that will be affected so quickly the post for instance the red post boxes with the er the second they have to be changed now as well so, but i'm going to turn to you uh, roderick as our token scotsman here of course <laughs> she died in scotland so um you can give us the voice of the scottish people Oh, I think uh, she's a lady who loved Balmoral. And I think for many of us, it's it's kind of a nice place for her to have passed away because I hope that that quiet, nice area brought her some solitude and some peace in the end, surrounded by her family. And I think the people of Scotland, it's uh, maybe it's a very sad moment, but we're in a way honoured that she chose to pass her final few days with us uh, up in, in Balmoral. So I think it's a very uh, moving time for everyone. Tell us about the, for those of us who've never been to that part of Scotland tell us what it's like why is it so beautiful and precious I've not personally visited directly Balmoral area but I have been in in Aberdeenshire itself you have beautiful countryside beautiful hills uh, you have lots of forests and trees but it's just such a beautiful landscape and especially I guess for someone like her who's constantly surrounded by the media if she goes out into her or would have gone out into her estate she had some peace and solitude to look across some beautiful landscapes you'll have seen some pictures actually of her and her family from many years ago when they were out actually just picnicking up there and i'm sure she enjoyed that calm and peace and quite rightfully so she's she was a private citizen as much as a public face and she deserved that time as well yeah she was i mean of course uh, she <laughs> didn't choose to be queen as we all exactly. know it was something that came to her and she gave her life to it dedicated service uh, moving to other news, uh, which we have all ingested through the week before this news of uh, Queen Elizabeth II passing, um, energy, it's ever-present. Well, that was the, the really big topic, in fact. It, it still is the big topic um, of, of the moment, is obviously energy prices are going through the roof across Europe, uh, in the UK as well. Um, across the world, really. And um, EU energy ministers are actually meeting today um, to try and bash out some way of of helping people and businesses cope cope with the rising price of energy. Um, so that that's on the one side. On the other side, for example, in Luxembourg, the Minister of Energy, Claude Tourmes, who is very much the man of the moment, um, held a press conference yesterday also asking citizens to show solidarity in saving energy. Um, so the EU has asked everyone, businesses and citizens, to reduce their energy consumption by 15%. Mm. Um, I thought it didn't sound so hard, the sort of suggestions he was making, but maybe this is hardcore Brits. You know. well, um, what did he say? I well, he asked conference. us, for example, to turn down your thermostat by one degree, uh, possibly two if you can, um, re- you know, reducing the shower time and turning down your thermostat and your boiler. Um, he's asking uh, public offices to only heat um, their offices to 20 degrees over the winter, which to me doesn't seem 
terribly cold and not to heat corridors I and to turn lights off. Google, I, the whole San Francisco Bay Area are notorious for having 18 degrees, uh, keeping it slightly frigid so that people think more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> OK. Well, maybe, I think, I don't know, you, you two probably uh, will know better whether that's uh, a, a big demand to make, 20 degrees. I, I think that's very possible indeed. And of course, it, it's so important because Gazprom switched off Nord Stream 1. And we have a wonderful quote from Zelensky. He said, Europe has to pay higher prices, gas prices. We fight the war. Um, and then, of course, Germany has backtracked. Yes. So so we, it, it's having a huge effect on, on all European countries. So Germany, because they're in a po- coalition with the Green Party, um, Angela Merkel, the previous chancellor, had announced uh, a closure of all nuclear power stations and they've had to ma- make a major U-turn and and uh, announce that they will keep two open until next year. They're on standby at the moment. But obviously, um, you know, we, we all need energy from somewhere. And, uh, you know, if, if countries like Germany who are so reliant on, on Russian gas, they're looking for alternatives. So obviously all the EU um, politicians are looking to other countries. Uh, the the uh, Luxembourgish uh, Minister of Energy went to Norway. Um, you know, pe- people are going around the world trying to find new sources. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we, we, we might mention that when we talk about space in a little while. But in fact, there's another little side story here. About oh, Google. I forgot. <laughs> I love this side story about Google Maps. Tell us about it. Yes. So that's that's a nice little sidebar. So Google Maps, which we all rely on, um, now have a new feature where you can not just do fastest or shortest route, but you can also do the most fuel efficient route. So um, you can put in a, a, as an alternative um the place where it has the least going up and down <laughs> so where, where your car will use the the least amount of fuel which I, I think is a nice feature and the other story that really made me laugh was advice from a um, scientist in fact someone who is um, a Nobel, Nobel prize winning physicist yes yes um, suggesting to the Italians to um, cook pasta in a different way so <laughs> which is quite controversial so he suggested that you bring the water up to boil put your pasta in and then turn it off and put a lid on and, it yeah, so put it a lid on evaporate. it keep it keep it hot and um, this has caused outrage <laughs> you can imagine in Italy you're saying well you can't cook pasta like this it will just go soggy and soft and make a ball but um, but in fact other scientists have said it, it, it should work and it would save an enormous amount. I, I can't remember the exact. Um, it would save forty-seven percent of the energy usually used cooking pasta, which uh, they said because of the amount of pasta that Italians make Not would light Italians. every football ground in Europe for twenty-four years. My God! Wow, that's impressive. Wow. That is they're quite big numbers. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I love these calculations that physicists come up with. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of my physics days a long time ago. <laughs> When people can, I remember one of my interview questions for university was, if every car moved to the other side of the road, what would be the shift in the angular momentum of the Earth? That's <laughs> <laughs> one of my interview questions at 18. Oh okay. my goodness. Yeah. <clears throat> Obviously, I didn't know the answer, but he worked it through with me and I just nodded a lot and tried to take it in. <laughs> 
imagine. Anyway, let's change now. Back to politics. We, we will mention it briefly. We won't sit on it, but we've got Liz Truss, of course, now. I mean, my God, the Queen was working literally right up until the day she died. God bless her. Extraordinary woman. Mm. Two days before yes. the Queen died, she she took office and and obviously went up to the to Balmoral to uh, officially be given the the office of Prime Minister. Um, she's got a full intray, hasn't she? I mean. Wow. <laughs> and on that point, I heard yesterday on the news that the Queen felt bad that these important people, as she said, had to travel up to her in Balmoral uh, rather than her being able to be in, but she couldn't be in London. Mm-hmm. Because obviously, she was so well. Yeah, but the photographs, I mean, they're she striking. She, she looked, looked amazing, amazing yes, the Queen, did. didn't yes. she? She was even yeah. smiling. And I, yeah. you know, knowing what we know now, that yes. was very, very powerful that she still had the energy to be that enthusiastic for what was happening. Extraordinary. Yeah. Amazing, amazing. So, yes, but she has a full load on her plate. Yes, yes so trust. now obviously she has to lead the nation, really, in 10 days of mourning, which, um, you know, I, I know officially... It, it will be uh, King Charles uh, the third, um, but uh, you know, the, from from a government's perspective, I think it will be an enormous task uh, because no one knows how how it's going to turn out. I mean, I I worked at um, the funeral, you know, the funeral arrangements with with Princess Diana. I know it's not the same kind of um, event because it's not a tragedy in the same way but who knows? I mean, people are gathering outside Buckingham Palace. More and more people are coming. Well, the difference there was. Princess Diana was not actually at the time entitled to a state funeral. Mm. Yes, at the time, but obviously. But I changed. mean, as far as people's emotions. Oh yes, and it's a different type of and it, death, and it's all organised. You know, it's obviously been planned for years and years. But uh, <laughs> I think she's got quite a task. Let alone, um, she's announced a huge cap on energy prices, which in the UK the cost of living is is a really really big yeah. um, issue. Um, so she's she's got that. She's got um, Northern Ireland as as a big issue with the EU. Um, that that needs to be solved. Where well, she, she's said that she's going to take that head on. Um, but generally, it's it's interesting as well. Uh, she's a she's third a, woman prime minister that we've had now, and a very diverse already cabinet. cabinet. From what we can see. Mm. Yeah, it's the first time that, yes, it's not all white men in the big um, offices. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you don't have to apologise. I'm in the minority now. (laughs) On top of all of that, she has two teenage daughters. In Downing Street, yes. I thought you would like that. I I was like, can you imagine? That's, That's tough. I think it's easier to work a lot. (laughs) <laughs> when well, you have two teenage daughters just work 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 um, yes well, let's let's touch on one more story then or one or two more stories before um, we, we shift to direction um, and this is really sad actually begging tourism in Luxembourg yeah it, the story caught my eye mm. because um, we always concentrate so hard on how wealthy Luxembourg is and uh, how I, I think you forget that there are big social issues here and um, actually, my daughter has sort of just it was so it was anecdotally has kind of said, I, we get so much hassle when we eat or drink outside on the terraces in, in Luxembourg. People are always coming up asking us for money. And you're like, oh, OK, I kind of dismissed it. And then this week, um, the president of the Retail Association um, kind of highlighted that it has become increasingly a big issue in Luxembourg is this beggar tourism. So people coming into Luxembourg specifically to beg because there is so much more money to be made um, and sort of saying that 
no, the police and the municipal um, authorities are not actually doing anything about it. I mean, obviously, there have always been beggars mm. here. But um, I suppose this, this idea that people are coming in specifically for this... Uh, way of of making some money is 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 new and apparently on 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 the increase and it's so very very sad i don't know if any of you have witnessed this i mean i i just from my own mind i think i've seen more of it through the summer also it was a very warm summer and maybe that attracted a lot of people it seemed every time i was in the city it was very busy yeah, um, it seemed busier than it normally was, but I think that was a weather thing as well. And it seemed there were more people. I mean, it's so very, very sad. And I don't have any political answers to that sort of issue. Very sad for, for the people having to deal with it and also for the people in themselves, of course, as well. Yeah, and it's an issue worth highlighting, I think, because yes. we do always concentrate on uh, the uh, enormous amounts of money that are being spent on different social things. We've often talked about, you know, wonderful uh, I don't know, free music schools or whatever the government is giving out. Um, but I have a feeling that this kind of issue maybe is slightly more swept to the side as mm-hmm. is like rough sleeping or things like yeah, that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And you're not the first person to say it. And final story to touch on then before we move on to space things. The wine harvest is starting earlier than ever before. Well, yes, also no surprise. It was a hot summer. Yes. And so Luxembourg's uh, winemakers um have announced that they they will start on around the 20th of September. Um, What I thought was interesting is they don't know um, whether it's going to be a particularly good year. It's going to be, there are far fewer grapes and the grapes are smaller, but much sweeter. So it could make for a bump, you know, a a very uh, high quality year of grapes, uh, but, but slightly less wine. Well, I imagine you're quite near a lot of vineyards where you live. Yes towards the Moselle region. Yes, no, we are right in the middle of the vineyard, so I'm always interested in, <laughs> in, 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 the, in the, the, the wine. And I have to, have to admit that I have picked a few and they were very sweet. I was going to say, do you ever pick <laughs> a grape and taste? Well, normally they're not very nice wine grapes to, to eat uh, like this, but they are quite sweet. Yeah, we have the orchards and Steinzel, of course, and we have had your wonderful apples, which I've yet to cook. You've brought in bag loads of wonderful cooking apples. Are they Bramley apples? They're not Bramleys, but they they are a cooking apple. You're very welcome to take some because I have got a lot of apple trees. Not one of them is an eater, so it's very disappointing. Um, You know, they're they're all for cooking or for making into apple wine or pie. I think traditionally they were all made into some kind of spirit. Oh, oh! In our village, they make a kind of uh, calvados. Oh. Yeah. Well, there's a new um, skill you can uh, acquire. This Making year. moonshine. <laughs> <laughs> One for you. You're, we'll make a scientist of you yet, for sure. <laughs> now, coming up after the break, I have Dr. Catherine Hadler, the director of the European Space Resources Innovation Centre. The Lisa Burke Show. Dr. Catherine Hadler is the director of the European Space Resources Innovation Centre, ESRIC, backed by a Pearl Chair from the Luxembourg National Research Fund, the FNR. Catherine joined ESRIC on the 1st of April 2022, so you're quite new in the role, uh, to lead the development of the centre, advancing scientific discovery and technology development in space resource utilisation. You're a chemical engineer by background with many years' experience in the terrestrial mining processing sector. You're a lecturer in the Department of Earth Science and Engineering at Imperial College London from 2011 to 2022. So welcome. We're delighted to have somebody like you with your background here in Luxembourg. 
Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I am very happy because you also live in Steinzen like I do. <laughs> you're also part of my community. Um, but coming back to space, I mean, you're here because we have this huge event going on in Rockall right now. So before we move on to Esfig, tell us what's happening in Rockall at the moment. Why is it covered in moon dust? So uh, this week, Esrik has been covered in fake moon... Uh, sorry, um, Rockhall's been covered in fake moon dust um, for the final of the Issa Esrik challenge. And what this is, it's a challenge to really advance technology uh, to be able to map the moon and to find potential resources in the future. So we've had teams out there with their robots mapping our fake moon in the in the rock hall and hopefully they will have found our hidden resources i see you've got the little treasures in there and they have to we have we have indeed yes. uh, but there are big prizes here because as you mentioned it's uh with the european space agency and esrig together combining so it's, it's a really big event with really big prizes it is, and it's not so much a prize so much as um, an opportunity. So what the teams are doing, it, it represents about 18 months of work um, in developing their rovers and their technology solutions to be able to, to, to map this and to find these resources. And the, the aim of this is that they are competing to, to, to be able to develop their technologies further. So what they, they, they gain at the end is a, is a contract um, worth half a million euros to develop their technology so that hopefully one day we will see one of those teams develop their technologies and move it onto the moon. Now, I know a lot of people think about space and all of the work that we do towards space. And sometimes people say, well, why can't we just use those resources and that money back here on Earth? But I mean, you were mentioning stories that alluded to climate change and we had it even in this morning's show with Sam Steen. The fact is that a lot of the space work needs to be so energy efficient and so clever that the technology use for space can be equally used on Earth. And you come from a terrestrial mining background, so you've probably seen this. Yeah, I think this is one of the most exciting thing about space resources is that when, when we think about space resources, we often think it's about going to asteroids and getting platinum and bringing it back and somebody getting very rich. But actually, the work that we do at ESRIC um, and with the European Space Agency is more focused on resources that we can use in situ for, so use in place to support science and to support space exploration. But what we learn from doing that, from these kind of harsh environments and having no atmosphere, no water, and all of these really, really difficult uh, environmental conditions allows us to think differently about our resources and we can take those ideas and bring them back to Earth to allow us to think differently about the way in which we do mining. And that's something that I'm very keen on promoting. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit more about space resources then. What that really means, you, you mentioned it's in situ space resources often and the utilisation of resources in place, as you say. Um, and then ESRIC's role and really what ESRIC wants to do when it comes to space resource utilisation. So the resources that we're interested in are things that we can use to to allow us to refuel rockets and to support human life. So we're looking at things like water and oxygen is the first thing and, and ways to construct habitats uh, and provide the infrastructure that will allow us to produce water and oxygen on the moon. 
Um, and that, I think, is the, one of the, the critical first thing we do. Because if we can produce water and oxygen, we can refuel rockets, send them further uh, onto Mars. We can support human life for a longer period of time, enable us to do more, more exciting science. Uh, what ESRIC um, does and what, why ESRIC was formed was really to provide the kind of central point in Europe for space resources. So what we see in space resources, there's huge amounts of activity. There's a lot of activity in the US. Um, and in Europe, there's lots of there's lots of really fun research going on, but there's no real one centre um, that really can 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 be that focal point. And that's what ESRIC is. So it's supported by the Luxembourg Space Agency, by ESA. We are a part of the Luxembourg Innovation uh, Luxembourg Institute of Science and Technology list, and we exist to support the community, to do research, support business, um, and really be that central point. And so then tell us a little bit more about the challenge. It's been on for a few days now. Today's the final day. I know we can't be down there right now ourselves, but I'm sure you've seen all sorts going on. What's it been like? I I saw it on Monday when they were setting up and it was really impressive. And then I have taken a step back and let them get on with it. I I thought maybe I'd be more trouble than than help uh, if I stuck around. So we've had um, we've had uh, coming up from now two and a half days of competition. There's five teams from around the world. And they have been uh, they've been spending about five hours in competition. So in the kind of in the dark, trying to explore the uh, the moon remotely. Uh, so I think there's been a huge amount of technical challenges. Obviously, this is a big, um, a big challenge. There's a lot of issues with data and network. The team, the organising team have worked incredibly hard. They've done a fantastic job to make this all happen. Um, and that organising team comes from from LIST, from ESRIC and from LSA and ESA as well. Um, and so they've come together to, to put on this 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 super challenge. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it again later on this afternoon. Yeah, I'm going to try and nip down there as well to see a little bit of the, the moon craft down there. If 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 my dog allows and if children allow and everything else that I have to do. So how is a winner decided? Oh, that's a critical question. So the winner won't be decided today. It's not a, it's not a, the, the, the team that, that covered the most distance or didn't or found the resources the fastest or anything like that. What they, the teams will do will they'll download their data, download their maps, present those in a report and then also submit a proposal. And so what they need to be able to do is to provide uh, ESA with a plan for what they will do with the, the money, how they would like to develop their technology further. Uh, it sounds super exciting and I'm very uh, curious to see what the winners will be as well. Uh, I want to think about your life journey a little bit because when you started out and you were studying chemical engineering and then terrestrial mining, you're a lecturer at Imperial, a great university there in central London, my favourite part of London actually I would say maybe. Um, did you ever think you'd move into space? Never. <laughs> if I'm honest, if you'd asked me six years ago, uh, would I ever be working in space? I would have said no. I didn't, didn't ever have a particular, oh, this sounds terrible, never had a particular um, interest in space, I think it's fair to say. Um, but what happened was I, I, I've, I've travelled the world, I've worked at a lot of mines, you know, doing research, carried buckets, you know, tested things with buckets and stopwatches. That's the kind of thing I like to do. Um, and you see the massive impact of mining, but also how important it is to our daily lives. And so I got into the space resources sector by just looking for new ideas for my research. 
and I think the, with a colleague of mine as well at Imperial, um, then we were we were just looking for for new ideas, something interesting. We kind of fell into the space resources community, and and as soon as you get into it, it's just um, the ideas, the discussions, these kind of concepts. It's so futuristic. It's really, really fascinating to 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 be part of that. It's futuristic, but it's tangible and it's right there. I, I, I've had to write that, that phrase because I think you're the only person who I've ever heard say, the thing I like to do is testing things with buckets and stopwatches. <laughs> That's my field of research. <laughs> yeah. but it's, but they used to call it, so it's mineral processing. It's a part of mining where you do separations of minerals and it, nobody really knows about it, uh, but it is huge. And they, um, for, for a lot of people in the sector call it bucket science. <laughs> oh, well, I, I think a gemologist wouldn't call it bucket science. <laughs> no, I've seen some amazing pictures in the talks you've given of these incredible mines that you've been in. I mean, just give us a sense of the scale of some of the mines that you have actually walked in. They are the, the open pit mines, so the open pit copper mines are absolutely enormous. So if you think um, a couple have been to... Um, the trucks that that haul the ore are about to carry about 250 tons so they're about the size of a house and so if you're in a four by four pickup behind the people driving those trucks can't actually see you in the four by four pickup so because they're so high up so you you know for example you have a little red flag (laughs) on the top of your cab so that they can they don't roll over you which is slightly alarming but but the, the the scale of these holes in the ground is just it's truly enormous what's really interesting though is if you compare the big open pit copper mines to for example some of the craters on the moon then actually the open pit copper mines are are significantly smaller than some of the big craters that we're talking about going to on the moon and that gives us a sense of scale i think often we think of the moon as being a relatively small body but actually you know there's there's, some of those craters are, are genuinely enormous Shackleton crater at the lunar south pole you sometimes hear about um it's it's several times bigger than uh, some of the biggest mines on earth yeah the way the geology changes on top of the moon and the earth it's fascinating well we're going to have much more from you and now coming after the next short break i have dr roderick mccall who's going to talk to us about all things to do with first responders to radiation lisa burke on rtl today radio So, Dr. Roderick McCall, your group leader of the Visualisation and Interaction Research Group at LIST is a very long (laughs) title there. Originally from Scotland, as we've already deduced from your wonderful voice. You've studied in Scotland, also in England, and you've worked in the UK, Germany, Luxembourg. Your background is in how humans and technology interact with one another, how people use IT, and your aim is to use technology to improve people's lives. You're an expert in AR and VR virtual reality, augmented reality and outside of work you enjoy acting which we might come to (laughs) (laughs) Probably bad acting No, no such thing (laughs) So let's just start off What do you do? What's the work you do? And what are you going to talk to us about when it's the first responder to radiation? Okay, so if you imagine when you see these people on the television in the white hazmat suits, uh, they're actually risking their lives when they go into these particular spaces Um, They have to find and they have to identify the radioactive sources in the quickest, safest way possible. So we started in projects to use augmented reality to help train them in these particular events. So they can't see radiation, 
but with augmented reality you can provide graphics and information as to where the radiation is, its strength, how it spreads and maybe how it cross-contaminates the space. So our objective really is to make them safer through training, so that's one side, but we also have a system on the other side which actually is used for live radioactive events and it's the same situation there. So what we want to do is to make them aware of the risks and hazards in real time so that some poor person doesn't have to go out and manually measure all the cordons to put around the dangerous area. Instead, they get the information automatically and they can see it in the glasses and hopefully that makes them safer. So that's basically it in a nutshell. Yeah, I mean, it's not... Mm. Um, it's something that's so important. Mm. And the reason it's important is, you know, when we think about the news, we've got Ukraine-Russia going mm-hmm. on. The idea of something going terribly wrong is not beyond our comprehension. We've even had nuclear power stations in the news for various yes. reasons, all sorts of different <laughs> reasons. I was thinking exactly this. <laughs> what about those nuclear weapons inspectors from the UN? Yeah. Yes. And also, of course, radiation is an issue in space. So, I mean, what you're doing, it touches so many things. So let's just dig in a little bit to, uh, I know you've got this system called STARI, mm-hmm. which is to help train first responders. So how have you developed this technology to do that? Okay, so we had a large European project along with a number of partners who are experts in radiation, for example, counterterrorism policing. And with them, we looked at some common scenarios that they might encounter if they were to go into a situation where they had to identify, find the radioactive source. So basically, we have a simulator. If you imagine this room that we sit in now, and one of us has the job to find the radiation in this space and also what type of radioactive source it is. So what we did was we worked with these people to develop these particular scenarios and we came to the conclusion, for example, that while the glasses also give you information, augmented reality, you can see the invisible, so that's very useful. In addition, you also have to interact with the real physical objects in the space. So one of the challenges that we had, for example, was how to... Uh, track the position of real objects and fuse that with the augmented reality displays. So we have, for example, a pretend radiation detector. There's no radiation in the scene whatsoever, but they can go around and pretend to detect radiation from different points in the room. So from that, uh, we can simulate where the different sources are located. We can also simulate and give them information about how much dose they have absorbed, because each of us has a limit that's safe for us to absorb. They are absolutely no different. So they have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of dose that they can absorb. So they can get this information in real time and they can make a decision when to exit safely or to stay in a bit longer as the case is there. Have you worked with some first responders? Yes, we have. So we have, uh, when we developed these scenarios, we went to a NATO base and we worked with a team there who showed us how to go in, identify and find the particular sources. We've also worked with some other people across Europe uh, in other countries and who have tested the system to give us some feedback on what's useful and what's not. So they find, for example, that if someone is very new to being trained in these particular spaces, what's useful for them to know is basically how the radiation spreads across the area, where it's safe to walk, where it's not. So somebody that's very new to training would see these visualizations and that allows them to guide themselves safely through the space. And of course, if someone is more experienced, maybe turn the visualization off, do the same scene, see if they can still find and identify the different sources. So you can have different levels of features for the, if you like, the level of experience of the first responder. And this is quite different from what happens at the moment. So they can use books and pretend objects in the room. That's quite basic. Another level is actually simulated chemicals that they spray everywhere and use. And of course, that's messy. It's quite expensive. 
And the last one, of course, is using real radioactive sources, which is super dangerous. And you can't do that very often because naturally there are many health and safety restrictions. So no one would bring in some today into this room, for example, and test it. So (laughs) I'm actually thinking what type of person opts to be a first responder in this situation? What type of... Um, They come from a variety of backgrounds. So in some countries, it could be the fire service that has a a dedicated and trained team. In other countries, it's maybe the military that go in and do this. Um, But to put it bluntly, these are people that risk their lives for us, often in unknown situations. They they might suspect as radiation. They don't know what the source is, perhaps, by the time they're called in. So they're going in, they're taking a great danger for us. And it's it's our duty, actually, in my particular field anyway, to try and improve their safety the best way that we can, and ultimately our safety if they're trained more effectively. These are complete people that are completely dedicated to saving our lives, so we, we owe them our respect for that. Mm-hmm. And then moving on to the actual riser x mm-hmm. which you've also developed which is for real radioactive instances yeah. so how does that function so basically we have a number of project partners across europe this again was a european project we have a follow-on project same in both cases it's funded by fnr to take it to industry and in this case uh, what happens is we get live data from different handheld detectors from robots from U- uh, uavs so drones from that data, this goes into command and control center that then calculates, if you like, the plumes related to these radioactive uh, sources across the space. Then in real time, we provide in the glasses or on the tablet initially, the coordinate information in real time and also where the risks and hazards are presented. And increasingly also we're looking at safe exit paths for people. So this is another area that we're looking at as well. So basically in real time, they get the safety information that they need. Rather than at the moment they get some information, they have to go and manually calculate how to put a bit of tape around the space and maybe it has to move because information has changed. So theoretically and in practice, this should be much safer for people. So in that particular project, it was not just us, but the amount of time, uh, by the time all the technology has been put together that people had to spend on site was much lower. So we make it safer for the first responders again. Yeah, yeah. When I was reading about this incredible research, one of the stories, news stories that came to my mind was that awful instance in the UK, uh, Salisbury, the Salisbury radiation Mm -hmm. instance. I mean, if your technology had been used there, could things have been done differently? Um, I think the better one actually is probably the Polonium 210 one in central London a few years earlier. So that would be one where we probably, if you take both environments, you could train people in that particular cafe and maybe they could go around the space, identify where the radioactive sources had been seen. So you could train them for these kind of environments and contexts. Um, you mean train the first responders? Yeah, yeah. So they could not, be the tra- not the cafe stuff, because ca- people don't <laughs> expect polonium to tend to turn up in a coffee. <laughs> no, no, I would hope not anyway. I've had some bad coffee, but nothing that bad. Um, at least I hope not. Um, so basically, we can provide training, for example, as I said, in an indoor environment like this. If it's more outdoors... Uh, that's where Riser X is currently used, increasingly also for indoor scenes. Then we can provide live information about where the sources are located in real time. We can also give them live notification updates if they're going in. So maybe there's some other information that's come in. So they can. Oh, well, that's informed. really interesting. The live notification. Yeah, so they can get some information based on their level of security clearance or whatever their ac- activities are, depending on the assignment of the commander. So they will get up to date information that maybe tells them to get out or to go further to a particular point. Um, and also communication between different people. So they can leave maybe an annotation in the space so the next person that comes in can see, okay, there was a risk or hazard there as well. Yeah, yeah. It's all about conveying information. And one of the big challenges you have is that these are very high-stress environments, also with limited time, with lots of potentially unknown risks, using potentially new technology that, again, is another thing on top of, of what people are used to. So 
we also have to try to reduce the cognitive overload that can occur through the interface design. So this is something we're looking at at the moment. So do we really need so many notifications? Do we need to have all this information all of the time? So there are all these kinds of human factors issues that you, you need to explore. You're touching on something so interesting there. It's so many different interesting things. But I know in a, in a, a call that we had, you mentioned that in your world of IT, there are not so many females. But yes. in fact, you have worked in Scandinavia. You, you, you were listening to talks there. There seem to be more female heads over there. But you were also saying that to build a successful IT product where you have so many different factors at play and that cognitive factor of thinking about how clear the mind has to be in order to think to make the right decisions. Um, it requires many different types of minds. Mm-hmm. And so I think I've seen it across everybody's field of work. The, the overlap, that cross-pollination really helps. So talk to us about... Uh, the one for more females in yeah, the that's true. research. So I'm very lucky that in my particular field, which is human-computer interaction, it's very interdisciplinary. So we have people from classic computer science, which is maybe more my initial background anyway. We have people from art and design. We have people from social sciences, uh, including philosophy, psychology, whatever. So by nature, this is perhaps a bit more mixed than the somewhat 90% male-filled computer science laboratories that I was used to when I was an undergraduate. So basically, when I started initially my master's degree, then my PhD, I came in contact with many more women in different research groups across Europe, in the UK and in in Scandinavia as well. So you need to have a balance of people, depending on what you want to look at. But in general, if you want to have a successful IT product, you have to think about men and women. You have to look at the design issues that may vary across different groups, what interests, what drives people. Um, And also from a jobs perspective, I think, uh, especially to be successful, we talked briefly uh, in the past about Apple versus Nokia. Yes. Apple's a very good example of human factors it's a design that's also very nice to look at. It's a very well-made device. When they initially launched it, it was not necessarily the most advanced phone. Maybe a Nokia was. But Nokia didn't get the design right. The human factors bit was not as good. So ultimately their products failed. So you actually have to understand people and you can only do that if you have a, a representative sample of the population, to be really honest. <laughs> so otherwise it's going to be a bit challenging. Absolutely. It so. makes business sense as well. I mean, I'm going to turn to you again. I mean, it, I, I hate, I don't want to bring up the female quotient part and you mm. are a fabulous example of a director in your position. Um, but I just want to talk more about that cross-pollination of subjects and especially, I mean, I can see it whenever I go to a space event. But tell us about that dynamic of male-female and ages as well. And of course, we want to have multiculturalism. So what do you see in the space world or in the engineering world, which you've come from, which is also not known for its massive female population? This is the the, the thing I was going to say. I came from the mining sector, the mineral processing sector. Some some, Bucket science. Yeah, the bucket science world, (laughs) where um, some specific fields are have more women than others um and then i went into the space resources world and it would seem if you take mining and space and mix it together you end up with something that is very male dominated in general and you see this in a lot of the 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 workshops and conferences that we have Um, but i think that that can change and it is changing it's a very dynamic kind of a world i think the, the the old space world um, was more male dominated than this new uh, new space world, um, and we will certainly be working very hard at Esric to make sure that we can reach the younger generations and tell them about the the impact that space resources and research in space resources can have on the world here. Uh, in addition to out in space, but I think it's a really important message that um, that we should be we should be promoting. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I see it all around. And I mean, so for your field in that kind of human interaction with technology, where do you get the female quotient from? From what subject areas? Um, that would be almost stereotyping, so I better be careful what I say. But, um, but, but it's not stereotyping if it's actually factually real. Yeah, yeah. And we have a lot of evidence to show. I think it's increasing. There are, I'd say, more female faces in IT, computer science in, in general. I might be wrong, but I've certainly noticed in Luxembourg there's been a few more around. Um, but I would say a lot of people are coming from the social sciences background. Um, and that's natural for this field because you have to combine psychology with IT. So there's naturally a kind of draw from that area. Um, and also in, in my particular domain, so I did a master's degree in this topic area. Again, it attracts a slightly more diverse crowd. So even at the master's degree level, maybe you have more females at that point. And certainly at the, the PhD level, there's many, many more women. So, I mean, I was quite surprised we had a fairly large number of women in, in the research group I was in in the UK when I did my PhD, also inside the projects I initially worked on. Um, and then that kind of dropped quite a bit when I saw some other organisations. In Germany, we had quite a few women again in the group in Fraunhofer I was in, maybe not 50-50, but it was higher than some other computer science groups. Um, but it's it's also, I think, trying to make the, the job adverts and what we do uh, more gender neutral, more appropriate for more people. Mm-hmm. And making the environment when people come to visit maybe not seems like scruffy male IT people. <laughs> so, so maybe we need Would to... Would you make it sound so attractive? <laughs> so, um, so we need to... I think we just have to change. We don't do positive discrimination in Luxembourg as a rule from what I gather. I'm not familiar with all the laws, but it doesn't happen. But we can certainly go a long way to... And I know List is doing this. It's very proactive in trying to make sure that the advertising is more gender neutral um, and hopefully with time, maybe we can have some posts uh, in Luxembourg that are maybe around women in IT. There's a whole research area related to my field that used to actually have particular posts in that area. So there's no reason why that can't be followed as well as a specific, maybe a pearl chair, for example, just to throw a wild thing. <laughs> um, so, I mean... Uh, a shout out to the <laughs> so, But it's, it's a matter of, of trying to appear open and inclusive from the beginning. I mean, in my field, you'll find quite a few. A good friend of mine is a female professor. She's at the top of her game. There's many others I've encountered, so I know it's possible in this particular field, and maybe we need to spread that message across the rest of it. With great well. examples yeah. like this. <laughs> Sasha, you have uh, daughters and a son, so uh, what do you see from their their friendship pool of uh, what they think about the whole well, science? I, I was just thinking world. that how much it's changed. I went to an all-girls school where sciences were not encouraged at all. Really? And um, uh, and I see my three children, two, two girls, one boy, and as you say, the opportunities are there and uh, the sciences are definitely uh, of much more interest because I think they know that there are more interesting jobs out there, mm-hmm. actually, for people who've studied science. Yeah. Well, that's so sad that you said sciences weren't encouraged. I went to an all-girls secondary school. I was saying, you know, the motto was serve yam, I will yeah. serve Ursuline. Um but actually, because of that, and in fact, the evidence shows that if you go to an all-female secondary school, girls do better in science because they don't feel intimidated, actually. Well, okay. uh, and in fact, because you don't know that you can't do it, whatever that means. So, uh, in fact, if the school encourages it, there's more opportunity there for, for females not to feel intimidated. But, um, oh, that makes me very sad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe it's an age thing. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> But, um, yeah, no, from your point of view, I suppose you'll be uh, trying to encourage that pool coming up as well. But also the breadth of opportunities available in the space world. It's it's enormous. Yeah, there's huge opportunities in space. And I think um, we 
we can really use the excitement around space to to bring in that diverse um, pool of people. And I think that's really, really exciting. One of the great frustrations for many years working in and alongside the mining world was the fact that nobody, nobody likes mining, which is fair enough. I mean, it does cause a lot of environmental damage. We use the products, but we don't like to think about the mining. Well, we all have the products Exactly. Here, we're, looking, we're surrounded by it. And, you know, we move into renewable technology. We need more resources to kind of uh, fuel the, uh, the, the, the energy transition. And I spent many years going around to schools and to do outreach and talking about mining and, and so on. And, you know, people listened and they can appreciate it's important. But now if I go and talk about space resources, then you really get people interested. So my sneaky little way around <laughs> this is I'm using space resources as a way of promoting um, indirectly thinking about mining and resources and I think that's a it's a good way of thinking about it because when as soon as we're starting to think about space and we're thinking futuristic and how we might live on the moon how we might live on Mars what we need what it might look like then it's it's a really it's a really interesting subject to talk about and we can be free we can be creative to think about it how we like and then that we can translate into ideas for earth and it makes us reevaluate our relationship with resources on earth and I think that when you're talking to when we're talking to young people when we're talking to the public in general I think that's a really interesting approach I think it allows us to 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 think more clearly rather than just see a big hole in the ground and go this is terrible which it is (laughs) Uh, but what can we do about this how can we change our ways and I think by those messages those kind of really creative thinking the futuristic thinking that can appeal to a broad range of people you don't have to have a scientific background at all to be able to engage with that thinking and I think through that we can really start to bring in a lot of uh, new new people. It's lovely that you use that word creativity because I think a lot of people think science and they think, oh, that's not creative at all. But in fact, if you can't think about other things, you can never make it happen. So mm-hmm. it reminds me of what my, my younger daughter said. Well, she says many things, but <laughs> including calling my mind primitive this week. <laughs> Which is marvellous fun. But um, she said earlier this week, she was actually getting very set and she said, I'm always in another world in my mind. And I was thinking, but that's that's a nice thing, isn't it? That you're kind of living in another world in your mind. She said, I miss my entire life because I'm always living in another world. In my, my, But I was thinking, don't we all do that to some degree? Isn't that kind of what our imagination is? Or is that unusual? I think if you work in, in science, I speak for myself, but maybe you same for yourself, Sue, is that, yeah, you do have to be a little bit adventurous in the head. Otherwise, because the point of research is to largely do what's not been done or to put things together in a way that's not been done. So you have to think, maybe it's a good thing for your daughter. Maybe one day she'll be the leading scientist. No pressure. <laughs> so, you have to do that. I don't say anything. Do I dare not say anything. I'll get my, my, my head bitten off. Just a quick question. You were, we have been talking about radiation. From my geology days, um, I think Cornwall is quite a lot of radioactivity, doesn't it? Cornwall, the stones in Cornwall are quite radioactive. They really are, yes. So before we were... I, I mentioned Cornwall, by the way, <laughs> because you lived there. I'm not bringing Cornwall out of it. Just for people who don't know, used to live in Cornwall. I was going to say, before we moved to, to Luxembourg, we, we lived in Cornwall for, for many years. Uh, many, many years, yeah. And it's um, it's what's really lovely about the move from Cornwall to Luxembourg is we come from a place of huge mining uh, history, you know, the engine houses, the copper and tin industry. And then now we're in Belval, surrounded by the iron ore. Mm-hmm. Um, industry kind of legacy and still still moving so I kind of I seem to move from mining place to mining place <laughs> but yet the background radiation in um, in Cornwall is significant 
uh, and it's a it's a real problem. You have to have radon um, radon gas. And so, do people die um, of radiation? illnesses in any form, a cancer of any form in Cornwall, more prevalently than other parts of the UK? I'm not the expert. I'll look over to Rod in a second, but um, <laughs> I'm not the expert in it, but I know it. Uh, it is monitored. I don't mm. think there's a significant attributable effect on the life expectancy but it is um but i i I wouldn't claim to be an expert well because there's so many other environmental factors smoking being the main one i suppose as well so it's absolutely fascinating i'm going to turn back to you sasha for the final thoughts to leave us on this day the day after we heard about uh, the passing of queen elizabeth ii and and any other thoughts that come to you as you know somebody who's living in the news at all moments to 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 end the show oh well i was just thinking that I think you've all got very creative minds because I'm definitely in the moment, I think, which is maybe it's a sign that I would, I'm not a scientist or uh, able to create things. So maybe I'm in the right job doing news and you're just like on it, short attention span. Oh, in the moment. But that's the healthiest way to be, apparently, isn't it? To live in the moment. Isn't that really good for your minds and all the mindfulness thing and the headspace? Oh, shall I, shall, and... Yes, shall I pretend that this is all very <laughs> deliberate? I'm very mindful. Very Buddhist. You people. <laughs> in, no, no, I think I'm sure it's more mindful to have to go to be imagining other I think a bit of both uh, is possibilities. A bit of both is the perfect, perfect balance. But I, I, I wish you luck, Sasha, because I'm sure for the rest of the weekend and next week you'll be... Well, it's going to be quite busy. Um, I think, up, up, you know, the next 10 days... Um, up until the funeral. I think it's going to be very busy news-wise, yes. It is. And I know that we spend a lot of time talking about UK-focused news, but the Queen was beyond the UK for so many reasons, the, the, other than the Commonwealth and the fact that she, she served for more than a quarter of the existence of the US, for example. It's just she was this stalwart. She was that pillar in in world history, actually. And somebody else said, you know, when you say the Queen, everybody thinks of the Queen of England, most people think of the Queen of England, I think. And uh, she just was that quiet, dignified presence. And I think she's an incredible example of of a female leader as well, in a very quiet, gracious way as well. So did you know she came to Luxembourg? I, I, I saw that in the news. Did you? Week. So in, in 76, she, she came with Prince Philip and uh, they did a tour and they also went down to Esch. And uh, Diffidange, I'm, I'm, I'm not quite sure what they looked at in, in Diffidange, but uh, maybe some old mines in uh, and Luxembourg City. Um, but there was a very sweet film, actually, on, on, on the uh, RTL Today um, website. Still available. Still available um, of, of their visit. And actually, I, uh, I actually sang in Buckingham Palace Gardens for her, I think it was Golden Jubilee. I sang with the BBC Symphony Chorus. And oh. so one of her, she's had so many... Jubilees. I think it was the Golden or the Diamond. I can't remember which, but we sang in her gardens. There was this pop concert and Brian May was on the roof of Buckingham Palace <laughs> and the chorus there and so many people. So, and I have a little kind of like beaker which says the, the Queen's whichever jubilee it was because she's had oh, wow. more jubilees than anybody in existence so um, that was a very very precious memory but thank you so much all of you good luck with everything to do with space this afternoon as you go down to Esh and the the moon rovers there and um, and wonderful news that Issa and Esrik are working together on this challenge um, hopefully we won't have 
too much need for the radiation AI that you're developing. But if we do have a need for it, whatever happens in the news, you have sorted it out to help the first responders. And thank you to the first responders. And actually, I want to just use my last few minutes to say a few thank yous, which I don't always do. But I think today being the first day where we have RTL Play and the wonderful Julia behind the camera here, who has organised so much. Uh, Thank you, Julia. Um, Thank you all for joining me and my guests. Of course, if you want to get in touch with any of your ideas, you can do so. Social media, you'll find a way. There's always a way to get in touch with people these days. Love to hear your ideas for stories, for even if you just want a a comment. And in fact, another lovely thing that um, uh, BBC Radio 4 show does is to just say thank yous. It has call-ins about people saying thank you to somebody random that they didn't get to thank at the time. And my thank you goes to a man who helped me pump up my tyres this week. I was perfectly capable of pumping up my tyres and I was in the middle of pumping up my tyres. I was just blocking him a bit because he'd parked in the air area. And then he came and he said, oh, let me help you with that. And I, I thought, well, you don't need to help me with that. But he, then he started talking about the pressure and the tyres and the temperature and various other things. And I thought I had it all sorted. But anyway, thank you to this man who helped me with my <laughs> air tyres. And uh, and I really want to say a thank you to the tech team. Uh, and I don't always do this. We don't always get the chance to do this because you see our faces but none of this happens without people like Julia Malouf, the magic hands as she said. She is the magic hands. Manuel Burt who uh, was here present as well. Gerard Flöner, head of radio here at RTL. BCE maintenance for radio and TV especially David Parisi and Romain Klein. BCE studio talk team, especially Miguel Rumpf, Tom Weiland and Olivier Vati. The new media RTL group, especially Christian Waldbillig and Serge Neumann. All the RTL Today team, all the RTL Today radio team. And uh, yeah, thank you all for listening. Thank you to my guests especially. And uh, without you, without the tech team, without the listeners, we wouldn't have a show. So it's my great pleasure to be back. And uh, here's to a wonderful autumn ahead. The Lisa Burke Show. 